The nagging. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Nagging Naturalist Podcast, a podcast that is all about wildlife. I'm your host, Kristen, and I am a naturalist by trade. And if you want to know more about my background, you can check out my first episode, Who is the Nagging Naturalist? My opinions are my own, and I do not speak for or on behalf of any organization, facility, or institute mentioned on my podcast. Uh, Before we launch into today's episode, I do want to apologize for the disappointment some people might have felt yesterday about the thylacine sighting, the supposed one at least. For those of you who don't know, a thylacine is also known as a Tasmanian tiger. It was, I believe, the largest or sorry, one of the largest, because I guess kangaroos are bigger, one of the largest uh, animals in Australia, one of the largest marsupials. It's related to Tasmanian devils. It might have been the largest carnivore. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. But either way, it um, is believed to have been extinct uh, by the 1930s, but there have been occasional supposed sightings of them that always turn out to be rather disappointing, and this time, unfortunately, was no exception. I think some people just really needed a little bit of hope this year, (laughs) and unfortunately they were let down. The thing that was cited, I think it's pronounced a a paid melon, paid pad melon, I'm not sure. It's a type of animal related to wallabies and kangaroos, to give you an idea. It actually looks kind of like a wallaby had a baby with a quokka, uh, based on the pictures that I saw of them, but... Sorry to the friends that were hopeful. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, go Google a thylacine. They were a really cool animal, and it's really unfortunate that we lost them. Anyway, this month we are covering species found in the Australian Esperance Mallee ecoregion, and today we'll be discussing not one but two species within the uh, genus Hemicordulia, uh, which is the Australian emerald dragonfly and the Tau emerald dragonfly. I'm going to be joined by a guest today. I do apologize for the first half of this episode. I did kind of rush through it because my guest wanted to discuss something in particular and had a limited amount of time for our interview. And so I wanted to make sure that uh, we got to the part that he actually wanted to talk about the most. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. And uh, here we go. All right. So today I am joined by Benjamin Lancer, who studies at the university, university, (laughs) who studies at the University of Adelaide. And you study some really cool adaptations about uh, emerald dragonflies in Australia, right? Yes. And in particular, we're going to look at two species within the same genus, the Australian emerald dragonfly and the Tau emerald dragonfly, which is a really interesting name. I, I never did look up why it's called that. I'm not actually sure why it's called the uh, Emerald Tau either, to be honest. I probably should have looked that up as well. My, my assumption is it's, it's it's probably indigenous. Like very often when I see, I, I've noticed in Australia, they're really good about uh, borrowing indigenous names when naming things, at least in the common name, but this is also the species name. So it may or may not be indigenous, but that's usually my assumption when I see a word where it's not inherently like a Latin or Greek name. So we are in uh, the animal kingdom, phylum arthropoda, class insecta the insects were in the order of i can't speak tonight we're in the order odonata the dragonflies and damselflies specifically the infra order uh and i'm really gonna mess all these up (laughs) the infra order anzio i keep saying anzio and 
instead of in Ansoptera. We're just, I'm just going to skip that part. They're the true dragonflies. Uh, the family and so Thank you. I just, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, once your tongue is poised to say it one way, it's hard to undo it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're in the family Cordulidae, the emerald dragonflies. And then the species and genus of these two. So the Australian emerald is the Hemicordulia Australia, Australia. And then the Tau is the Hemicordulia Tau. <laughs> They're, they're very similar animals. Uh, there is a slight difference in size. The Australian one is uh, 4.5 centimeters in length and 6.5 centimeters in wingspan, while the towel being slightly bigger is five centimeters in length and seven centimeters in wingspan. And for those of us who use the butchered metric system, these are like, you know, one and a half and two inch dragonflies with four and five inch wingspan. So not massive by any means. In their appearance, they're extremely similar. In general, though, they, they have their adult bodies look like much like any other dragonfly with very large eyes, elongated narrow abdomens, and two pairs of translucent wings. Uh, and the bottom wings are a bit broader than the top wings so that they're not quite uh, the same the way they might be in like damselflies. And of course, as insects, they have six legs and a chitinous exoskeleton. Now, even though they look the same, obviously uh, you use certain field marks to help differentiate these two dragonflies. Did you wanna go briefly over some ways to differentiate between the two of them? Yep, so the easiest way to tell um, between the Hemicordulia australia and Hemicordulia tau is looking right at the front of the face. So the Hemicordulia tau has a little black mark on the front of the face on an area we call the fronds. Um, and it looks like an upside down T. So I always tell my students T for tau. And then the Hemicordulia australiae has a kind of iridescent green patch on that same area. Uh, the other really easy way to tell, and um, once you get your eyes attuned to looking at dragonflies out in the wild, it's really easy to um, tell this with one flying around, is the wings. Now, they have a front vein on the wings called the forevein, uh, and this is the stiffest and biggest vein on the wings. Now, in the Hemicordulia tau, this is yellow, and in Hemicordulia australiae, this is black. And oh. the yellow reflects sun much, uh, much nicer. So usually when you're looking around at one flying around um, in the wild, you can see just by whether that forevein is reflecting sun or not, whether it's a Tau or an Australia with high accuracy. And that's usually how we tell just at a glance. Oh, that's really cool. Uh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd seen the thing at talking about the black mark. I didn't get to see too many pictures, though. I didn't realize I made a T-shape. So yeah, that definitely... <laughs> That adds a lot of context to the pictures that I've looked at of the two of these. And yeah. I, I would say definitely helps identify them in a lot of these pictures. Okay, there, there are some other dragonflies that have a, a similar T-shape. Um, that can be a little bit confusing. So there's the Australian Emperor, which has a similar T-shape, but that can be differentiated because it's a much bigger dragonfly. It's, um, I would say, two or three times the size of a towel and has different body colors. Oh, that's, that's monstrous. Like... <laughs> Like, I mean, I know that dragonflies aren't small animals in general, but, you know, when I visualize the size of the towel, I mean, that's kind of typical dragonfly for, like, my native species in my area, like, are about the same size as the towel and the towel and the Australian dragonfly. But uh, imagining my native dragonflies double in size is pretty intimidating. 
So they both have relatively the same range for the most part. They're found all along the southern coast of Australia, uh, with some of them going upwards into the north or in parts of central Australia. But in general, they're going to be found in more regions closer to the coast where there's more uh, wetlands, basically, in, pla in places where their nymph stage can live. And in general, it seems like the Tau is a little bit better distributed, or at least it's been recorded in more places than the Australian Emerald has. But in general, though, they seem to have quite a bit of overlap in where they live. So it's really good to have those field markers to differentiate them, because basically you could find either of them in a lot of the same places. Now, as far as their habitat goes, like all dragonflies, they prefer, prefer to live near a freshwater source, such as lakes, ponds, river streams, and other wetlands. Uh, in places like the Esperance Mallee, even though it has a lot of dry scrubland, there are some wetlands and local water sources in this region, which are critical to that nymph life stage. And then they can also emphasize emperor pools uh, when necessary, but for the most part, they definitely seem to show preference based on their ranges of places that have stable water sources that aren't going to dry up very easily. Going into their diet, this will explain part of why they need that water source is all dragonflies that we know of are obligate ins insectivores uh, throughout all of their life stages. And that first life stage is aquatic as nymphs or naiads. Uh, they spend the first few years of their life in water typically. And while they're in that water, they are <laughs> voracious predators that eat basically anything that fits in their mouths. And this can be things as big as tadpoles and fish fry. So it's not limited to just invertebrates, but that is what they specialize in eating. As adults, with their extremely agile flying abilities and acute eyesight, they are hunters that will eat other flying insects such as mosquitoes, flies and midges, butterflies and moths, damselflies, even other dragonflies. Um, overall, dragonflies as a group are considered one of the most successful hunting animals that we know of, on average catching between about 83 to 95% of their prey, and that's just average. They can definitely do better than that. So. You know, considering when we're talking about large vertebrate carnivores, most of them are lucky if they're getting 10% or more of their prey. These guys are going after and catching almost all the prey that they find, which is incredible for any animal. Yeah, that hunting success is really the crux of why I study them. So I'm studying their visual system, uh, trying to understand how they're able to be so accurate in tracking targets through these really, you know, high speed um, pursuits that they do and amongst swarms. And yeah, so that high success rate is really impressive uh, in, in the context of the um, visual sort of stimulation that they get. I kind of vis visualize like that um, military aircraft screen where it shows like the little circle with a cross in it, little crosshairs like moving around the screen and then hitting the target. Like that's how I visualize dragonflies hunting when I think about that really high accuracy rate. Yeah, so something similar to that going on in their brains, definitely. Uh, moving into their reproduction, especially since a lot of this stuff hasn't been super well studied, it seems like the assumption is that they largely do things like other dragonflies will, where males will kind of eck out a little territory and drive away competitive males. And once a female enters this territory, he will fly over to her, try to grasp her, and maneuver his abdomen so that he can clasp her neck, which is her prothorax with uh, special anal appendages known as Circe, I think, Circe, something like that. 
and then the female will bend her abdomen and bring it, her copulatory organs up to and uh, make contact with his, which is under his second abdomen seg segment. And uh, once they're in this position, I always find this interesting. It's called the wheel formation, which is weird because they make a heart shape. And anybody who's seen a heart shape knows that doesn't make a very good wheel. So it's a funny name for it. Yeah, it really <laughs> seems like a missed opportunity to call it a heart formation or, or something similar, doesn't I know. it? No, I know. It's so cute. They would be like great mascots for thing silly things like, you know, Valentine's Day. But for some odd reason, we focus on you know, teddy bears and other things like that instead of really cool dragonflies. <laughs> and so within the, at least what I could find within the Cordulidae family, female dragonflies typically lay their eggs in water by tapping their abdomens against the water to try to push out eggs, or they might also lay their eggs on uh, vegetation near the water. Either way, the eggs have to be near water because as we mentioned before, the naiads are aquatic, so they they have to be in those wet spaces. Which brings us into the lifespan, which is always really interesting. Uh, not all insects do this, but this isn't, they aren't the only insects that do this, but for dragonflies, uh, the longest part of their lifespan is in that naiad stage. So their, their juvenile stage is the longest part of their life. Depending on the species, they might last between one to five years in the water and some factors that might impact how long they stay in the water could be what species it is, what habitat they're in, or what the climate and temperatures are. And then for the adults, uh, depending on the species again, adults might last anywhere from a week to up to two and a half months, but they definitely don't live very long as adults. They basically come out of the water, hunt, eat, and mate, make more babies and die at the end of the season, it seems. So, you know, they, they invest a lot in their development and then they waste they blow all of that <laughs> development in the short span of their adult lives yeah so the nymphs can last as you said a, a couple of years in the water but they can also go through this stage of their life really quick uh, so for example the nymphs that emerge into adults um, around uh, adelaide in october will usually live for a month or so and while they're in their adult stage they're reproducing laying eggs in the water and then those eggs will hatch and fully develop and emerge as adults sort of a month later. So even within the same season, the same sort of six, seven months, you can get two or sometimes even three generations of uh, dragonflies coming through. And then that final generation lays their eggs just before it starts to get too cold. And then those ones will stay in the water all, um, all throughout winter. And, until the next summer but they can do this their nymphal stage very rapidly uh, there have been records in hemicordulia i think this was in towels of um, them going from egg to adult in two weeks in uh, cattle troughs this was up in uh, queensland that's um, really so impressive very rapid yeah yeah so it's really dependent on, on water temperature um, so that's how they regulate it because if the water's uh, hot enough that they think it's going to be a good environment outside, they will rush through that nymph stage to get to the um, the adult stage where they're reproductively um, active. It kind of reminds me of sharks. Sharks actually do that where uh, when sharks lay eggs, uh, typically for most sharks, the warmer the water is, the quicker a shark develops and hatches out versus if they're laid in cooler, more temperate waters, uh, it takes them longer to hatch. So you might have sharks where they might lay their eggs and the eggs will hatch in four weeks or they'll hatch in 12 weeks. It all depends on, you know, that water temperature. So 
that's that's interesting that they have that kind of a convergent adaptation with sharks where the water temperature really impacts how quickly they can develop. Yeah, temperature is really uh, a really important driving factor for a lot for reproduction in a lot of aquatic species. Well, that makes sense. I mean, in, in most places where things are cold, they'll often take more time. Like, what is it? Uh, there's that woolly butterfly or caterpillar that's up in the Arctic, and it will spend like four or five years in its caterpillar stage eating food every summer and then hi basically hibernating all winter until they can finally turn into a butterfly, make babies and die. So it's, it's definitely not an uncommon strategy for some animals. I just think most people don't think about the idea because we're so used to, you know, vertebrates and things like that, where you have a relatively short developmental period and a much longer adult period in a lot of vertebrates and even some inverts. So it's certainly interesting. And uh, I, I always thought it was a cool strategy. I never even saw dragonfly naiads until a couple of years ago. I went out to a pond and helped collect some and they are wild. If, if, if we had had more time, I definitely would have loved to go into the sci-fi alien like craziness that is the look of that naiad because they are super cool. And I totally understand yeah, they are the mandibles really cool, like, yeah. why they can eat yeah. so much. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So looking at their environmental value, uh, these guys have a lot to offer. So uh, they are predators, of course, of the aquatic invertebrates in their naiad stage and flying invertebrates in their adult stage. And in particular, uh, humans really appreciate the impact they have on things like mosquito populations. And especially where you are in Australia, from what I read, uh, Australia as a continent has roughly 300 mosquito species. So I feel like dragonflies are a really important part of the local ecosystems. Absolutely. And, you know, dragonflies really do a, a double whammy on mosquitoes because mosquitoes have a similar life cycle where they lay eggs in the water and then those eggs hatch into larvae. So you have the dragonfly nymphs, which will predate on the eggs a little bit, but especially the larvae. And then, of course, when both are emerging based on temperature, so they're emerging um, together, then the adult dragonflies will hunt the adult mosquitoes. So it's really a great control um, factor across the mosquitoes life cycle. Absolutely. And we and we oh, certainly appreciate them. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you know, mosquitoes are so successful in so many places. They don't they need somebody to keep them in check. And I will accept any animal, invertebrate or otherwise, that eats mosquitoes. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, speaking of which, they're great prey for birds, amphibians, fish, and other things that uh, predate on them in both stages of their life. Obviously not as great a feast apparently as the emperor dragonfly, but they definitely provide a lot of protein and nutrients for birds, especially when you have demanding chicks that are like most vertebrates trying to go really fast through a short developmental stage and get into their adult stage really fast. Animals that are big and really full of protein and calories like a dragonfly are a really important food source for other animals. So they are definitely uh, significant in the food webs that they're part of. And finally, we have them as ecological indicators as well. So because they require fresh water uh, and they require certain water quality and then an abundance of prey to eat because in both stages, they can be such voracious predators. If these three things aren't really present, you can't really have dragonflies live there successfully. So uh, when we're studying certain habitats, 
we can look at the presence and the abundance of dragonflies and see that as an indication of how well certain things are available in that habitat. Is there fresh water there? Is it good quality fresh water? And are there plenty of things, other invertebrates especially, that these guys can eat while they're in this space? For social value, I actually found some pretty interesting stuff. While dragonflies have been represented in human art for thousands of years, uh, they have found their way into some really interesting uh, representation in the indigenous uh, people of Australia. So dragonflies are depicted in artwork and are a cultural symbol to represent movement, transformation, and health for some of these southeastern Australian indigenous people. I couldn't find too much for Western Australia, but it may just be that not a lot of people write about it and put it on the internet for me to read. Um, and I found this interesting. Apparently some people call them sticky beaks, which means a busybody. And this was an interpretation of the dragonfly's behavior that pe people feel like they're inquisitive because they zoom up somewhere, they pause and look before moving on. And obviously for those of us that know about the animals, we understand that the pausing and looking around is you know, often them trying to get a sense of what's around as far as prey, or in some cases, maybe potential mates, but the indigenous people kind of look at that and they're like, oh, they're inquisitive and trying to figure out what's going on. They're busybodies. And I thought that was kind of a cute way to uh, interpret, a, I mean, a, basically a, a consistent behavior they have, because this is basically what they do all day when they're not at rest is when they're flying, they're zipping around and pausing in certain places and getting a sense of what's around them. Yeah, I adore that interpretation of the dragonfly behavior. And I have to say, I might be saying sticky beaks for a while because I've, I've never heard that term before. I didn't know that was a term. And I think it's the funniest thing I've ever heard. I don't know. Oh, I mean, sticky beak. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. It's yeah, it's quite a common term in Australia. Um, yeah, meaning exactly that. I didn't know it was had come from dragonflies. Um, I'm not sure if it came from dragonflies or if they gave it to dragonflies. <laughs> I couldn't find yeah, a lot of information yeah. about the slang. Yeah, like, I mean, you know, you wouldn't describe a dragonfly as having a beak, but um, yeah, it certainly certainly applies to their behavior. That's that's super cute. I love it. I I might just call my dragonflies at my local pond that whenever they're hanging around me. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, they have a lot of economic value for humans, one as pest control, um, but part of that also ties into human health. So in pest control, they're helping to control not just things like mosquitoes, but biting animals like horse flies and deer flies that are vectors of disease and parasites are also animals that we want to see less of. So in, in the duality of this, you know, they're controlling these pest populations and they're also helping to improve human health by reducing the populations of these harmful animals. So it's really cool that you know, for them, they're just trying to catch a meal. But for us, it's a really big deal because, you know, mosquitoes carry a lot of diseases that can harm us. Horse and deer flies can carry a lot of disease and parasites that can hurt other mammals like horses, <laughs> as horse flies do. So I thought that was a really cool uh, double duty that they pull. And, uh, you know, all of this is a free service. As long as we maintain wetlands and habitats for them to live in they will eat these animals for free for us which i always appreciate yeah absolutely for their conservation as far as i could tell both species were of least concern for the most part in that uh there hasn't been any big or drastic enough decline decline in their populations to merit them uh having a more severe rating however they are experiencing some declines in areas where habitat loss and degradation occur 
Um, and of course, as I mentioned, uh, they're affected by things like a lack of access to fresh water or if the water that they can access is poor quality. And so the best remedy in protecting animals like dragonflies is ensuring that wetlands are preserved or, re or restored as needed in order to aid in protecting uh, a essential habitat for dragonflies to exist in. So for me in Baltimore, uh, I actually have a pond near where I live and it swarms with dragonflies every year. But in that same vein, there is a pond down where I used to live in Southern Maryland that is very polluted and actually supports zero dragonflies. The only thing that hangs out on that lake are some mallards and a couple of red-eared sliders. Other than that, you know, we don't see anything in that space because it's such a polluted area, which is ironic because where I grew up, it's a small town and their water source is more dirty in that small town than the city I currently live in, which has a freshwater pond where I get to see all kinds of um, blue skimmers and things like that here. So I imagine it's probably the same out in Australia. I definitely read a couple of websites that talked about critical habitat uh, protection areas, and they mentioned in the Mali regions protecting wetlands for a variety of animals and actually specifically mentioned dragonflies, just not these two species. But I can appreciate that at the very least, the Australian government does prioritize certain habitats where really important species can thrive. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked a little bit before about the dragonflies being an a bioindicator of water quality. And that's because, you know, the dragonflies are really specific about what needs, uh, about, about their needs in water quality. Um, so if you have a situation where the water is of high quality, you'll be able lots of different species of, of dragonflies around. And that's a really good indicator that the habitat is uh, doing well. Um, but when you have no species or even maybe just one species, uh, that's an indication something's really going wrong. And I especially imagine too, since these two have a lot of overlap, if there's an abundance of one over the other in certain areas, while that can occur naturally without any uh, influence because they would be competitive at the same time in some places like Southeastern Australia, where both of them have much larger overlaps. I imagine that seeing a lot of one and not the other, you know, might be a little bit alarming for people. Like why is it that in a space where both of them live in relatively equal amounts, why would one be more present than the other? Yeah, it would certainly raise alarm bells. Um, from everything that I've seen, the phylogy between Australia and Tau is very similar. Uh, we do see some differences in their distribution over uh, the course of a day in terms of temperature. So the Hemicordulia Tau tend to uh, come out and do their flying around at slightly lower temperatures, a mean of about, say, 19.5 uh, degrees uh, Celsius, whereas the Australia like um, slightly higher temperatures. Um, about 23, 24 degrees Celsius. Um, but this is, you know, in the same area over the same lakes, the same ponds, just at, at different times of the day. I mean, I'm not sure yet what the physiological basis of that difference in preference is. Um, but then if you were to go and you were to see a particular pond that only species and not the other, it would definitely start raising these questions of, well, why is this appropriate for the one species and, and what's different about the other species? What's changed in the quality of the water or the quality of the habitat that's pushed one, one of the particular species away? Well, and I know in a few other species I've read about, you mentioned that they obviously have some temperature variances in, their, in uh, 
what they prefer. And I know that in some species, they have adapted some of those preferences specifically to avoid um, competition. So is that possibly one of the reasons why the, uh, they've adapted these things is to avoid, especially since they're so similar. I mean, all dragons, all dragonflies are extremely similar and don't seem to have preferences. They're all very generalistic carnivores that will just eat whatever they can get their their mouths on basically so i imagine uh having preferences for certain temperatures or certain times of day might help reduce the overlap in like hunting competition yeah that's definitely a good evolutionary hypothesis for it well that just means that you know whenever you get the answer to that you can come back and tell us what's going on with these dragonflies <laughs> Yeah, I'm preparing a manuscript now actually looking at uh, differences uh, in 10 Australian dragonflies, including Hemicordulia tau and Hemicordulia australia, um, looking at differences in um, meteorological measures. And so uh, temperature, wind speed, air pressure, UV, all these different things, um, how they affect sort of hourly abundance. And I I'm still going through the data on that, but I've um, got some pretty interesting findings so far. Oh, that's exciting. Well, cool. Well, you'll have to link me the paper if it's, at least if it's publicly available <laughs> when you publish it. Um, yeah, yeah. Hopefully we'll be able to put it in open access. Cool. I, I love open access papers. As somebody who doesn't have a lot of money paying like 50, 50 to $90 to see a paper is a lot. <laughs> yeah. Or if not, you can send it to you privately. The scientific publishing industry is, is so weird. So we're actually allowed to send out papers pretty much to anyone asks, uh, as long as we do it privately. So if you ever find a paper you can't read, just look up the first author's uh, email address uh, in the channel and just send them an email and they'll usually be happy to send it to you. Yeah, I have kind of found out that most authors are, because I mean, for the most part, as far as I know, like authors aren't necessarily making like, when I pay that 40 or $50 to see a paper, that's not all going to the author. That's basically all going to the uh, publisher, essentially. So um, I've definitely known uh, most, yeah. most scientists to be yeah. good about that. <laughs> yeah, none of it goes to us. We uh, we pay the publishers to uh, publish it, and then you pay the publishers to read it. And uh, we also do all the editing work uh, unpaid as well. So it's it's a rod, really. Yeah, it's it's time to burn down that system and start all over again. <laughs> yeah. Um. All right. Well, since we've gotten through their natural history and their values and conservation, you had actually wanted to come on to talk a little bit about introducing dragonflies into more tabletop RPG settings uh, in order for people to be able to better represent these really cool animals in their games, things like Dungeons and Dragons and other types of games. They're really just non-existent in these spaces. Yeah, they're criminally underrepresented, I think, dragonflies. And before we launch too much into it, I guess I, I wanted to answer the first question because this was the only place where I really found dragonflies. And that was in a sort of Fern Gully-esque type RPG where you're this uh, small fairy type person who rides around on dragonflies. Um, now, regardless of the size of dragonflies, in my mind, I'm thinking of their, their very narrow bodies that are very carefully weighted and, you know much like a sword where if your sword isn't carefully balanced, it could be clumsy and not strike very well. In my mind, the idea of anything riding a dragonfly seems like it would mess with their flight capabilities. So in a lot of these RPGs where we see either giant dragonflies being ridden by regular people or regular sized dragonflies being ridden by very tiny people, 
based on what you know about dragonflies, do you feel like that's even something that would be sensible to do? Well, I mean, I think it it depends on your definition of riding. So if you look at a dragonfly, I'm not sure where you would be able to sit on it and, and saddle up on it. So they have these big globe-like eyes on the front of their head. Um, and these are compound eyes. And the really interesting thing about compound eyes is they're con convex as opposed to concave like our eyes. Um, and so they have um, their eyes going around almost like a sphere that gives them almost 360 degrees of vision, o almost, not quite. Um, so you certainly couldn't sit anywhere on their head because it's mostly eye. And then just behind that is the thorax, which has these two pairs of massive wings. So there isn't really room to sit on anywhere on, on the thorax either, because you would be between the wings and then get in the way of the, the range of motion of the wings. And then behind that, of course, is, is the long slender abdomen, which um, most people think of as sort of something similar to a tail. Um, and I suppose like you, you might think it would be possible to sit on that, but it doesn't seem like a very good place to um, sit on if, if you were trying to uh, control the dragonfly. But instead, you know, these dragonflies, they are predatory animals and they do, um, they catch their prey in air and, and then they often eat their prey midair as well, uh, especially the hawking dragonflies, uh, which both Hemicordulia tau and Hemicordulia australia are. So if you can think of this dragonfly flying around, it sees a blowfly, it flies up to that blowfly and it extends its legs. It's got um, three pairs of legs and these legs have these little hairs on them. Um, and as the dragonflies extend their legs around um, their prey, the hair forms a sort of basket-like thing that um, captures the prey. And then they fly around holding it in their legs while they eat it. So if you could uh, train a dragonfly to extend its legs around you and not eat you, which might be a, a difficult thing to do, <laughs> um, you could probably sort of sit in that basket that it forms with its legs and have it fly around. So they are strong enough to carry, uh, carry their prey and, and continuously fly around while they do that. So if you manage to, um, if you were a little fairy small enough and light enough that the dragonfly could carry you, you could sit in the basket. Or if you managed to find a dragonfly that was big enough and strong enough to carry you, you could sit in the basket. So, uh, you know, I don't know if that's riding exactly, but there's <laughs> certainly some scope there. Yeah, and actually, while you were talking about that, it kind of gave me the idea of what might be really cool, especially with what great predators there are, they are, is if you could train them not to eat their food immediately. Um, you know, if you had, instead of, you know, giant dragonflies big enough to ride instead, definitely larger dragonflies, more the size of like a hawk, if you could do like dragonfly style falconry and get them to like hunt other large insects for food. I mean, if you have the right setting, such as a jungle or a place that would have larger insects and denser insect populations, if you could train a dragonfly to actually go capture prey, especially with their high success rate, you and the dragonfly both could eat really well, assuming you want to eat insects. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And like, trust me, that um, that idea has crossed my mind numerous times in the past. So we do all of our research on wild caught dragonflies. So we um, spend hours, <laughs> hours every week out uh, catching them with nets. And I've often thought if, if I could catch just one of the bigger dragonflies and train it to go catch 
catch the smaller ones for me and bring them back to me, I, I would save a lot of time um, in my PhD. <laughs> the <laughs> so that, perfect that research thought, companion. Thought, yeah, that thought crosses my mind every time that I'm out there. That is so funny. I ha- I didn't even think about it until you were talking about them like carrying people. And I'm like, but what if they can bring you like other things? Like what if dragonflies could run errands for you? They would be amazing. And since they have not necessarily great eyesight in the sense of something more akin to ours, but definitely really good eyesight in comparison to uh, other insects, depending on what you have them targeting. Because from what I understand, their vision is, for at least from what I read, this could be wrong, is that their vision is best when things are moving. They're not necessarily hunting stationary prey in a lot of cases, that their visual cues come from kind of like the busyness of their environment. Is that how they see? You would obviously know better than me. Yeah, absolutely. So the dragonfly eye, you can sort of split it into two halves. And um, you can really easily see this on the dragonflies. So if you were to look at a picture of them, and we were talking about this before, you can see the dragonflies have two different colors. And those colors reflect the color sensitivity of the eye underneath. Um, And so let's just talk about the top hemisphere at first, the dorsal side. So this side essentially only detects one color. They detect UV and and maybe a little bit into the purpley bluey spectrum that we can see. And dragonflies are essentially, you can think of a dragonfly flying around. It's looking up with the dorsal side of its eye, straight up. And um, so it's really doing what we call shadow tracking, where it's finding um, another insect, some prey, Um, And then what it'll do is it will position itself so uh, it is underneath its prey. So it can basically see the shadow of its prey against a bright sky. And one of the uh, climate things we've found is that dragonflies really prefer to be out and hunting uh, in non-overcast environments when there's as little sort of cloud in the sky as possible. So it can really contrast the shadow of whatever it's tracking against the bright sky. And this is, yeah, all based on motion. So um, they do motion correlation between the uh, omatidia, which are sort of you can think of as individual pixels of the dragonfly eye. So any signal that's going over multiple omatidia in sort of a trajectory, so um, eliciting uh, as activity in one omatidia, then the next, then the next in a line, that'll create a really strong signal in the dragonfly's visual system that it's able to lock onto and and then track during these um, high-speed pursuits. Um, That's mostly what the hawking dragonflies do. So these are the ones that fly around and catch all their prey on the wing. Uh, Perching dragonflies will sort of perch somewhere on a a reed or something like that near the water. And again, they're looking for prey that's flying above them and then they'll go up and capture that. Uh, The other side of the dragonfly's eye has much broader, much broader color recognition for various different colors and also polarization recognition. So polarization is a property of light that we can't really see, but you can think of it as the angle of the wave of light. And um, water bodies reflect polarization uh, different from um, ground surface. So dragonflies use this to determine where is the water and um, water quality and and things like that. Um, But some dragonflies 
are able to do a behavior that we call gleaning. And this is picking up, it's basically picking up a, an object off the ground, or sometimes they will glean spiders from webs. And it's basically where they're hunting a stationary or slow moving object from the ground. And this is obviously driven by, uh, by the ventral eye, the, the part that's looking down. Um, but they can do this on stationary targets. So a spider in its web or a, a ground insect uh, sitting, sitting on the ground or, or sometimes flies that have landed. Uh, so this is going to be driven by, we think, pattern recognition and color recognition more than motion detection. And uh, yeah, so some dragonflies are really good at this. Other species are not so good at this. Uh, the hemicordial Julia Tau and Hemicordulia australiae. We don't have any evidence that they specifically do gleaning, but some other species do gleaning and our damselflies also really specialize in gleaning as well. So they actually are able to pluck spiders out of webs? Yep, yep, some species do this. There are some species of uh, tropical dragonflies that specialize in hunting spiders and the majority of their diet um, will comes from hunting spiders. So these are dragonflies that are native to uh, Southeast Asian areas, um, some in Northern Australia, none that I've worked in myself, but they are out there. And yeah, so they will fly around, grab a spider from its web and they're, you know, um, aerially dexterous enough to avoid getting entangled in the web to just fly up to the spider, grab it and uh, then fly away and eat it without the spider really being able to do much about it. That's, that's wild. I mean, especially since, you know, when I think of spiders, of course, their webs are designed to be sticky, difficult to see and things like that. The idea of a dragonfly's eyes to be that acute. And then of course they're phenomenal flyers. I mean, just like in my head, it makes sense when I think about what they're adapted to do, but at the same time, anything being able to just come up and just pluck a, a spider off, especially something like another insect is really really wild. And so that actually comes in handy too, because, you know, again, you know, insects in general are <laughs> pretty uncommon in a lot of these tabletop RPGs. Invertebrates as a whole definitely are, but spiders, of course, make their way in because spiders are this classic archetypal like opponent that you can face. So yeah. that would be kind of cool. The idea of, of building like a dragonfly companion and being able to have it help you in situations with things like large spider species and being able to uh, remove them as a danger would be really cool and really out of it. Or even just, I guess, wild shaping into one too. If you could create like a wild shape profile for dragonflies and having advantage over spiders as an opponent would be really cool. Yeah, I ran one campaign where I had my players... Uh, come across a jungle where there was a war going on between a, a dragonfly empire and a, a spider empire that, um, yeah, really focused on these. So there are certain kinds of spiders called um, net-throwing spiders. So obviously the, yes. these spiders can throw throw their nets and maybe catch the dragonflies in fight. So, yeah, my players had to decide which one to uh, ally with. And they ended up choosing using the spiders and I think that's because they knew I wanted them to choose the dragonflies and they decided <laughs> obviously if the DM wants something we have to do exactly the opposite. Naturally. <laughs> oh that's that's really cool though and that's that's kind of the fun of learning about some of these animals and how their adaptations would balance them in things like combat 
is you can create these kinds of scenarios where uh, these animals can be, you know, somewhat evenly matched and create really cool scenarios like that. I would definitely buy a, uh, like a mini campaign or a combat encounter uh, supplement that would have something like dragonflies versus spiders. That sounds really cool. Yeah, it was, it was really fun. Now, obviously you mentioned, you, you talked a lot about this really cool adaptation they have with their eyes. Now, like I said, it's, 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 I, I would never compare dragonfly eyes to human eyes. Obviously our eyes are great compared to a lot of animals. We can see things really well. We register depth perception, but we do lack certain things like the ability to detect UV rays uh, or catch certain kinds of motion. So knowing how, how their vision is designed for a character that might want either you know, like a spell or a blessing that imbues a certain trait or to be able to wild shape because they need that advantage? Like, do you feel like there are scenarios where the dragonfly's vision would be more advantageous in certain scenarios than human vision? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned before, I think the major difference, um, and there are a lot of differences, but the major difference I want to highlight between the insect compound eye and the human camera lens eye is that the compound eye is convex and the camera lens eye is concave. And so that basically means um, that the, the convexity of the compound eye means it can see a much broader um, broader extent of the world. So you can imagine if you had um, this, essentially this globe on the side of your head that had um, visual receptivity all around it, you can, you have a much larger ex extent of vision and the dragonflies have almost 360 degrees of vision. So a uh, dragonfly eyes is a, a spell or a, a biomorph in D&D, it's real sort of advantage would be that you would be almost impossible to sneak up on because you would be able to see pretty much the entire world around you. So the dragonfly eyes, if you look closely at a picture of them, you can see that they bulge out up above the rest of the body and then go and curve around behind to the back of the head. So they actually have omatidia that are staring pretty much directly behind them. So um, it would really give a player that did it or a character that had it maybe some immunity to being snuck up on, or at least, you know, give them advantage on roles against being snuck up on. And that I think would be the main advantage. Uh, the other one is insect eyes do have higher uh, temporal resolution than vertebrate eyes. And this essentially just comes down to the photoreceptors. So the photoreceptors respond much faster and um, have a much, a much shorter sampling period. This is harder to come up with what an advantage in a D&D sense might be. Um, but you could think of it as maybe being able to react faster uh, to stimuli, especially stimuli in motion, or resolve moving stimuli much faster. So that look is moving so fast it looks like just you know a grayish blur to us might be um, resolvable to a dragonfly or a compound eye um, much easier or another possibility would be uh, seeing things that happen really fast so you can imagine say you had a situation where you were presenting your players with a puzzle uh, where there was some like visually flickering 
triggering stimulus, maybe a fire and a, a pattern or a message behind that fire. And it was just too hard for a vertebrate eye to see um, because it was integrating over a longer time period. But you, uh, a dragonfly's eye might be able to um, see sort of glimpses. I feel like a rogue or monk would probably benefit from that since they have to have really fast reflexes and the idea of nobody being able to sneak up on them is highly advantageous. So I can imagine like a path of the dragonfly for like monks or something to give them that, you know, the ability to not be snuck up on and the ability to see things that would be considered like mysterious or difficult to gleam. Like it, it, it really kind of fits that archetype really well of the rogue and the monk being people that need to either sneak in a lot of cases or not be snuck up on and or need to have quick reflexes or be able to discern things very quickly. I think that either one of those classes would really kind of benefit from an adaptation like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really love the idea of a, a path of the dragonfly monk because uh, it's not just the vision, but dragonflies, as we've said, they have four wings, um, two pairs. But unlike most insects, they can actually control each of their wings independently. So most insects, the, the wings are slave to each other. So what's happening with the right uh, wing, for example, is kind of reflected in the activity of the left wing. But dragonflies can control them independently, which gives them this massive um, advantage advantage in their sort of aerial acrobatic ability, their aerial agility. Uh, they can make really tight turns, really fast turns. They can turn um, 180 degrees on a, a, on a dime, basically. And they often use this to escape my nets when I'm trying to catch them. <laughs> um, and this, I think, really fits well with the monk as well. This sort of high agility abilities um, would really fit as well. Yeah, that does sound really cool. And um... As, as we mentioned, they're highly underrepresented. And I feel like another, th obviously somebody else who might benefit from this or who could benefit from it would be uh, a druid or ranger type. Because, I mean, druids definitely do the wild shape, but obviously rangers also use animals and animal blessings in a way and things like that in order to give themselves advantages. Now, obviously it would not they wouldn't have the stats to really back it up as much because obviously monks and rogues have more dexterity uh, and things like that that would really help aid them in being able to better utilize some of the abilities of dragonflies but in general for on like the short term since there's obviously uh, scenarios where this would come in handy creating a wild shape for dragonflies where you created like the, the actual stats for it the armor the hit points all the traits and things like that uh, would be really helpful in um, now now I'm like in my head like trying to think of like what would be their strength what be be, be the dexterity because I don't view them as strong animals but obviously very dexterous and so you know obviously be yeah. able to balance them pretty well because there are some disadvantages to dragonflies but there are some very obvious advantages where in certain scenarios they would be extremely helpful in resolving issues Actually, they probably have high so constitution too. <laughs> they eat everything. Yeah, so I think they would have fairly high constitution. They would definitely have high, high strength. And it's been a while since I played a, a traditional d and I mostly work on a homebrew system that a colleague and I sort of um, have been working on for the past couple of years. But they would have high perception or, or wisdom as well. Strength is an interesting one because... You're right in that I don't usually think of dragonflies as, as being strong in the traditional sense, um, but they are quite 
quite strong flyers. So the larger species of dragonfly, the Aeschnidae, can um, stay out in surprisingly high strength winds and continue flying around and continue to stabilize themselves. Um, and they can also fly out of water, um, the larger ones. Uh, which is really quite amazing. Most of the smaller dragonflies and even the medium-sized dragonflies, if, if they get in water, it's, it's game over for them. Uh, they usually don't have the wing strength. Um, that They just can't open their wings once they're wet because of the surface tension of the water sticking their wings together. But some of the larger dragonflies... Um, We've seen in some high-speed video footage of frogs predating on dragonflies that the, the frog can sort of jump out of the water, surprise the dragonfly. Well, first of all, dragonflies are usually like uh, have enough agility to just turn around and fly away while the frog is jumping at it, mouth open, uh, tongue extended. Um, but sometimes, even if the dragonfly is captured, you know, that tongue uh, a grapple, if you will, on it, and the frogs <laughs> have sticky tongues, pulls the dragonfly under under the water, uh, some species of the large dragonfly are actually strong enough to then escape the stickiness of the tongue, fly out sort of through the water using, using their wings, as long as they're not too deep, then get up in the air and fly away. And that is quite a feat of strength that um, I think is quite amazing, to be honest. <laughs> No, that is. I didn't realize they could do that. Like when I, when I'm sitting here thinking of their speed, I was like, oh, well, speed's not usually tied to strength. It's usually a racer class-based uh, stat. But if we're talking about escaping a frog's tongue, which is literally a fly catcher. Um, yeah. I mean, no, that's, I could definitely see that. So. So I was just going to say the distinction between um, strength and dexterity or agility kind of breaks down with wings because usually what imbues a flying creature with dexterity is the strength of their wings that's fair so yeah i guess if, if you wanted to keep it balanced then um so using 10 as like 10 is your your median like it's not anything great it's not anything bad it's just you know 10 is that middle ground having like slightly higher stats in things like constitution and strength, like a 10 or a 12, and then dexterity being your high trait, being something like 17 or 18, um, definitely. And then obviously intelligence and wisdom, obviously they have the good eyesight and the ability to interpret what they're seeing, which is important. And I, I would assume that would probably go under, it's interesting. Wis wisdom is where perception falls, but interpret interpreting your visual cues, I would put under intelligence. So I guess they need to be decent in kind of both of those. They can't really be low in either of them because that would counter their natural abilities. So really they would, they would kind of be high in a little bit of everything because even <laughs> charisma, I personally view dragonflies as very charismatic. I mean, especially in the you know, beautiful jeweled colors they have. Their translucent wings can come in different colors. I'm a huge fan of amber wings. Like, I mean, I don't feel like I could put any of them at a, at a 10 or, or lower for any of these stats. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. One thing you could do for the potential issue of strength and dexterity is to give them a fairly mediocre or, or maybe even slightly below average strength score but then give them a special rule saying that, you know, strength roles that are related to the use of wings or related to flying are either just naturally considered at advantage or maybe use their dexterity instead. So that is one way you could implement this kind of divide between 
between what we usually think of as strength and then the, the flight strength of dragonflies. As for wisdom and intelligence, my, uh, my gut instinct is to put a lot of perceptual categorization and interpretation actually as wisdom because what, um, and you know, this is informed by me being a visual neuroscientist um, looking at, at how the visual system works. So I, I would still put a lot of that in wisdom and then have intelligence be more the combining of information from different sources, different modalities, uh, prediction and things like that. That said, dragonflies are fairly good at that as well. So I study, uh, as we said, I, I study their visual system. I study a particular neuron in their visual system. And what's really interesting about this neuron is it does uh, what we call winner-takes-all selective attention. And you can imagine this as being like, um, so when you give an animal multiple sensory of cues, but only one of those sensory cues uh, is important for the task or behavior they're trying to do. Um, most animals have the ability to some extent to ignore the distractions, the things that are irrelevant and just focus their attention on uh, what is relevant. Um, and the way this is done in the brains of birds and primates and humans and uh, most vertebrates studied is a weighted system where the brain's sort of activation profile is weighted towards one or the other but still includes information from the distractor and this can lead to some really um, interesting uh, results where for example the brain's activity can be driven down uh, with the addition of an of excitatory stimulus that would usually excite it when the excitatory stimulus is a distractor. Uh, but dragonflies have this winner-take-all system where they are able to select and represent their target as if there was no distractors. So they will respond uh, in exactly the same way when I present just one stimulus on the screen or when I'm presenting 15 stimulus stimuli on the screen. They will select one and respond to that as if the others don't exist. And they also do this thing we call neuronal facilitation. And this is basically enhancing the neuronal response to a stimulus that's on a consistent trajectory. So dragonflies are act actually, when they're hunting, uh, they are observing and tracking one of their targets and they're predicting where the target is going to be next and instead of using shoot strategy that flies will do for example where flies use what we call a chase pursuit strategy where they'll just you know get behind their target and try and fly faster than it and as long as they're flying faster they'll eventually catch up Dragonflies essentially calculate uh, an interception point in the future where they go on a, a path to that interception point where they think their prey is going to be to catch it instead of just passively chasing it. And, and they do this by facilitating the neuronal response and, and in increasing that neuronal response to targets on a consistent trajectory where they then go and enhance the parts of their visual system where they expect the target to be in the future. So those parts of the visual system are more sensitive and thus able to respond faster to the target when it gets there. So then they can go and intercept it on this predictive path um, rather than doing a... Um, rather than doing a, just a straight chase like a blowfly does. So that I would say intelligence, um, but then dragonflies are also really good at that. <laughs> but then they have some, you know, there are some senses in when they can act not very intelligently. So 
dragonflies, like most animals, have a, a heat withdrawal reflex. And, you know, this should be really familiar to you. If you touch a hot pan, um, it sends a message to your spinal cord that says, ow, that's hot, and then you'll with withdraw your hand. So dragonflies have a similar things with their legs. Um, if we put a hot touch their legs with a hot probe, withdraw their legs um, to preserve them. But they also have another reflex when you present something coming up to them rapidly, they will extend their legs to grab onto it. And this is sort of a reflex involved in predation. Um, if you have a dragonfly that's speeding up to a mosquito, for example, um, that mosquito is going to be rapidly approaching their legs. So their legs are then going to reflexively extend to grab that mosquito. And it's important for it to be a reflex because then dragonflies can do it really fast without having to, you know, integrate with the uh, head information in the head ganglia. So that's why it's a reflex. But it ends up with this situation where if you present a hot probe to the dragonfly, the dragonfly will extend its legs to touch the hot probe and then immediately withdraw its legs because it's hot, but then immediately extend again. And the dragonfly oh, will no. essentially do this indefinitely uh, until you take the probe away. So that is an example of perhaps some non-intelligent behavior in dragonflies. So I would really say in a, in a sensory sense, they have a great ability to pick out individual targets from a swarm, predict where that target is going to be in the future, and then fly to that target, um, to that target's predicted location so they can grab that target. And they do all of this while explicitly positioning themselves in the target's blind spot. They use a strategy called motion camouflage, um, which is basically they position themselves and fly on a path such that from the target's perspective, they don't actually appear to be moving, even though they are. So they can do all these really clever things um, when hunting prey um, that you might want to say is intelligent, but it's all really driven by interactions in their sensory system. So I would say maybe give them huge high wisdom and then maybe a little below average for balancing on the intelligence. Yeah, that's exciting. And, and definitely in the wisdom, I, I feel like, especially since so much of their adaptations are focused on perception and reflexes, even if you don't necessarily want to go super high in wisdom, you could at very least, you know, pour extra stats into things like perception and make them, you know, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, proficient in perception and things like that so that they have like max stats. And as you were listing all these things out, I'm sitting here like in my head, like going through the classes and like, you know, the motion camouflage. I was like, that's a perfect monk a robe and a rogue. And then you were talking about their ability to predict where prey is going in order to chase or to, to capture it. And I'm thinking if you have a melee weapon and you're trying to throw things at a moving target, if you had something like a spell that imbued you with the ability to predict where your target's going, you know, it would give you advantage on like your role to attack and the ability to strike a target uh, that's moving. So, I mean, I could definitely see a lot of these traits being broken down into advantageous either spells or class traits that would directly improve or enhance, you know, the abilities of these different classes that people would choose. So, I mean, it definitely feels like kind of with the exception of fighters and barbarians, for the most part, I mean, almost any class other than those two can potentially benefit. Actually, if the fighter invests in a ranged weapon like uh, arrows for some ungodly reason, I guess they can be <laughs> I've never heard of a fighter that uses them, but I mean, I definitely know they could, like they could have like a spear they throw or have bows and arrows, but for the most part, uh, that's 
unfortunately not what most people do with fighters, but definitely like, um, you know, if you are talking about somebody who's going to throw a spear or shoots bows and arrows or is throwing a spell at somebody, having advantage on your roles, you know, thanks to like a, you know, blessing of the dragonfly or something would definitely be a, a cool way to take traits of a dragonfly and use them advantageously in things like combat or maybe even just if, if you are a monk or a rogue and you're trying to stealthily follow somebody but you can't, you don't want to be within sight of them, being able to predict their path so that you don't always have to have eyes on them and knowing which direction they're going to go while you're ducking around a corner would obviously be very advantageous in those kinds of scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, they have this motion camouflage ability where they can uh, approach prey without appearing to actually move from the prey's perspective so you can imagine that would be a fantastic ability especially for like a, a rogue who can pretend hey i'm i'm still over here i'm not coming up to you meanwhile they're setting up for their sneak attack even though they're actually still visible the uh the target just thinks they're still far away instead of right next to them um so that could be really good for rogues. I've traditionally thought of dragonflies as really gelling um, with the rangers, but I think you've convinced me on the monk side of things. Uh, a <laughs> dragonfly monk sounds sounds really cool to me, and I, I might I might keep that in my back pocket for next time I'm uh, next time I'm a player. Yeah, definitely. I've I've got uh, a a lot of stuff churning in my head right now of uh, stats and spells or, you know, class traits for like a certain path or, you know, whatever people choose. It just, there, there's definitely a lot to play around with that. I, I mean, before I, I looked up these species, I had some cursory understanding of dragonflies. And I do remember when you, <laughs> when you had, um, Ellen from just the zoo of us talk about the Australian emerald, uh, in one of her episodes, I think she called it the century dragonfly, though, because common names. Yep. I, I do remember her going over some of the visual traits. And so I knew that that was going to come up, but I just, I never thought of it in from the context of how do I take advantage of these traits in a fantasy setting like D&D? <laughs> and now my mind's just churning with the possibility. So yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to sit down and, and draw up some notes because that's that's amazing that's it's really cool what they're capable of doing especially considering all of that is compacted into what i consider a very small animal they're large for an insect but they're tiny for an animal so it's just it's 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 amazing what they're capable of in those little heads of theirs which are mostly just eyes yeah, really. ab <laughs> yeah absolutely so the the stats i i usually give so the dragonfly brain is about the size of a grain of rice uh, it has 1 million neurons, um, and, and this is in comparison to um, the 86 billion neurons in our brain. Um, so really small brains, and yet capable of all these um, amazing, um, amazing sensory abilities, you know, the abilities in selective attention, uh, where they are able to hunt prey in swarms without a reduction in success rate. So most animals, when they're hunting in high-density swarms, sure, they might be successful 
overall because there are so many targets, but each individual attack is, is pretty likely to be unsuccessful. Dragonflies can sustain that like 90 plus percent rate in high density conditions. Um, so they're not perturbed by swarms and they do all this prediction of target trajectories, um, which, yeah, al allows them to follow targets even when the target becomes momentarily occluded, um, such as flying behind um, the... Um, flying behind a tree, for example, the dragonfly can sort of predict where it's going to be, where and when it's going to come out on the other side of the tree on its, on its current path. And these are really cognitive and predictive abilities that most people don't credit insects with that were for the last you know, 20, 30, 40 years were really thought to be in the realm of just primates. And then they were extended to um, other vertebrates. And now the, I'm extending them to dragonflies. And yeah, I'm really excited about that. There's a, a lot that can be done there. Well, that's really cool. I'm glad that uh, you've shared this uh, very inspiring information. It's, uh, I, I really hope that people who play games like D&D or other tabletop RPGs We'll be able to kind of think about this because that's kind of the fun of it is, you know, while I mostly talk about the natural history and their values and conservation, you know, I do like to sometimes look at how we can creatively apply these things in other areas that aren't necessarily science based and tabletop RPGs are such a perfect example of where we can blend science and fantasy because that's the point is even though it's magic based, you can still use real life adaptations and we can expand on them too. So that's going to be really cool. I'm definitely looking forward to that. And I'm definitely grateful for <laughs> all the information you shared because it's, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to go back and listen to this some more and uh, come up with some new ideas. So thank you so much for, for joining me and sharing all this information. Well, thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, as hopefully you can tell, I, I really love talking about my dragonflies and I really love D&D. So, uh, putting them together and uh, having other people interested in me putting them together, is um, it's been a really great time. Well, that's that's phenomenal. Thank you so much. I, I'm really excited to put this out and have other people listen to it. But of course, we're currently on uh, opposite sides of the globe. And it's almost my bedtime. So I'm going to let you go and continue with your midday while I go and uh, head to bed. So thank you so much again for joining me. And uh, I can't wait to release this episode. No worries. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it. And I look forward to seeing the ideas people come up with. Absolutely. Have a good day. See ya. All right. And that is a wrap for today's episode. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to tech, check out Benjamin on social media, uh, he is on Twitter with a handle at Benjamin underscore Lancer. So that's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N underscore L-A-N-C-E-R. For this episode, I cite some information from the Atlas of Living Australia, Sciencing, Westmead Redevelopment Project, the book titled Dragonflies by Cynthia Berger, and a 2012 paper called Linking Biomechanical and Ecology Through Predator-Prey Interactions, Flight Performance of Dragonflies and Their Prey by S. Combs, D. Rundle, J. Iwaski, Iwaski, I'm not sure how to say that, sorry, and J. Kral. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to my email, thenaturalist at thenaggingnaturalist.com, and I do have my website, thenaggingnaturalist.com. On social media, you can find The Nagging Naturalist on Facebook and Instagram, as well as on Twitter on the handle at nag underscore naturalist. 
You can also help the podcast by leaving me reviews on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser.com to support it. Normally, I would go through a whole bunch of podcasts at this point, but because this was a longer than normal episode, I'm going to keep this a little short. I did want to give a shout out to a non-science podcast. If you're interested in history, it's called Across the Ages Podcast. It is run by a woman named Natalie from the UK. I actually follow her on Twitter. She's a really funny individual and she posts some really cool stuff. I suspect, because I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, I suspect that it's a not-for-safe-for-work podcast, but you'll have to check. But she's a really cool individual, and I look forward to listening to this podcast when I have a chance. And then I also want to give another shout-out to More Than Just a Scientist as well. I've talked about it in previous podcasts, but it's run by two really incredible women who are shark scientists talking about their lives and their experiences, and it's just really cool. So thanks again so much for listening. I'll be back next week slash next month with a whole new species and a whole new habitat to explore.